Hey, welcome back to ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Matt Carlson, and today we're going to break from the general routine where we talk about a very specific disease uh, process within a subspecialty of ENT and talk about something that's more uh, global, something that's affecting all of us in all our different subspecialties, both nationally and internationally, and that's the topic of COVID-19. We're joined by three special guests who are really in the trenches caring for patients during this time. They include Dr. Caroline Gross, an intensivist from New York, Dr. George Juana, a neurotologist from New York, and Dr. Danielle Marchioni, a neurotologist from Verona, Italy. And so maybe we can begin with an introduction from Dr. Gross. Sure. Um, I'm, a, I'm a critical care trained anesthesiologist. Um, prior to the COVID pandemic, I split my time working as an anesthesiologist in the operating room and as an intensivist caring for patients in the cardiac surgery intensive care unit. Um, obviously, my role now is, is very, very different. I'm now triaging and caring for COVID-positive patients in the intensive care unit. And this basically involves you know, the acute management of respiratory failure and mechanical ventilation, as well as management of our patients' pre-existing medical conditions. Wonderful, and uh, Dr. Uh, Marchioni. Yes, I'm, I'm uh, the chairman of the University of Verona in ENT, and so regarding COVID, uh, actually I'm trying to perform uh, some study about COVID and the manifestation in ENT. And today, I think that one of the most important aspects is to try to understand how avoid COVID inside the department in order to perform a surgery, in order to perform a surgery on patients regarding malignancy or urgent cases. Thank you very much. And Dr. George Wana. Um, um, hi, I am. Uh, first, thank you for the honor to be on this podcast. Hopefully, we'll give some valuable information. So, uh, before the COVID episodes uh, started in New York City, I'm the chairman of uh, the ENT department in Mount Sinai downtown, which is uh, New York Ionet and Mount Sinai Beth Israel. My background was in neurotology uh, and otology. And now, uh, the main uh, focus on New York Ionet is to convert it into a non COVID hospital. Uh, for the patient who needs need surgery critically. As far as clinically, because of the shortage of uh, physician, uh, I'm part of the DART service, which is the difficult airway response team um, that take care of patients with COVID disease if they have a problem with airway and need a tracheostomy. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. So just for our listeners, our three experts are really kind of in a concentrated location for this. Um, and I think we have a lot of... Um, uh, practical information insights we can gain from them. So we have, uh, again, we have uh, Dr. Marchioni from Italy and Drs. Carolyn Gross and Dr. George Juana from New York. So in your two locations, can you just briefly uh, tell us the number of COVID positive inpatients you currently have, how many are requiring ventilation currently, and if you have any patients on ECMO, and if we start with maybe New York. Sure. Um, as of this morning at Mount Sinai, we had 711 uh, inpatients being treated for COVID. 130 of these patients, so, so just under 20%, are receiving mechanical ventilation. And as of today, we have three patients on ECMO. And Dr. Marchioni. We know that in Italy, uh, the problem was at the beginning of March. And we received a lot of patients with the COVID positive and our intensive care unit was full. But today, luckily, it uh, seems that the curve 
is decreasing. So actually our intensive care unit, the, the number of the patients are less with respect to before. And we have in Verona about uh, uh, 300 patients uh, requiring intensive care units. Can you describe the general atmosphere of your hospital during this time? And do you feel the media has accurately portrayed the current state of affairs where you're at, uh, maybe starting in Verona? Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, you know that in Italy, we receive a lot of patients at, at the beginning. And uh, the problem was uh, that we were not able to receive all these patients inside the hospital, requiring, of course, ventilation or intubation. So uh, the atmosphere was really uh, difficult because, honestly, sometimes we had to take a decision which kind of patient we have to treat, which kind of patient we have not able to treat. So it's, it was really terrible condition. And uh, nowadays, the people are just a little bit more happy because probably we are assisting at a decreasing of the people affected just because of the restriction. And uh, so uh, probably we are starting to see uh, the light in the tunnel, you know. <laughs> so actually, actually, the most important aspect is the protection because also another important aspect at the beginning was that we didn't find the protection, especially also inside the hospital and also the family doctor. And also for this reason, a lot of doctors uh, were healed and at present, uh, we have a lot of doctors dying because of the coronavirus. Um, and maybe, Dr. Gross, if you could comment on the current state in New York. Sure. I mean, we certainly are overwhelmed. The hospital is, is overwhelmed. On a physical level, uh, you know, we've had to expand to accommodate uh, an ever-increasing number of patients. We've built additional patient rooms all around the hospital, including converting the hospital lobby into patient rooms. And we've converted a lot of regular hospital floors into intensive care units in order to accommodate the patients who are critically ill and need mechanical ventilation. Um, our physician and, and staffing ratios have changed dramatically. Now a given nurse or a given physician will be caring for many, many more patients than he or she would have uh, previously within a given shift. So we, it is very daunting to, to take care of so many patients uh, that have a disease that still still remains very new to us. That uh, is a nice transition to my next question I had for you. Uh, you know, what are the ratios of staff that are currently redeployed or on furlough, and in what capacity are the patient or the providers who are redeployed? Where are they working, particularly from uh, people within the otolaryngology departments? Uh, Dr. Wana, can you comment on that? Uh, the mothership for Sinai is what Dr. Gross practiced. The bulk of the critical care people is there. So we needed to help in every single aspect uh, of those hospitals. So we just end up deploying the whole department from the ENT, from the downtown campus to all those hospitals to different roles. So there is a, to give you an example, there is uh, probably 40% of the downtown campus ENT are now running a floor that is COVID on Mount Sinai West. Uh, uh, and then this is low equity uh, patients uh, with COVID that, that will need to be discharged or you need to be bumped up to intermediate care. 
some of them, including myself, are on airway calls and at Mount Sinai uptown. Others are covering ICU um, uh, at Mount Sinai, Beth Israel, and others are in Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, covering also ICUs. And we have few of them at Elmer's Hospital, which was on the news recently because they were overwhelmed uh, covering an emergency department in ICU. That as far as faculty, as far as uh, staff, all the staff is being deployed. Um, some staff has, has medical condition and we don't want to put them at risk. So we ask them to do some stuff from home, uh, such as video conferencing or telemedicine or, or, or telehealth. And other staff, we try to find something completely from home for them to minimize the exposure. Overall, uh, there were different plan, uh, surge plan for, for the system. Uh, but all hands are on deck. And uh, the magnitude of the crisis, I don't think anybody can really talk about it uh, in a, on, on paper or on TV or anywhere. It's, it's really something that no, nobody ever has seen before. Thank you. And Dr. Marchioni, from your standpoint, being uh, the chairman of your department, how have you redeployed uh, some of the staff positions and uh, support, supporting nurses? Yes, uh, it's a good question. Ju just to, to say also some number now, uh, just uh, new today in Veneto, uh, the new positive are about 30,000 people are positive to COVID. And uh, at present, uh, the people who died for COVID in all Veneto, that is the region, is about uh, 7,193 patients. And so also, also today, the situation is just a little bit difficult. But anyway, of course, uh, one of the most important aspects is uh, to uh, perform uh, our activity, of course, because uh, there are a lot of people requiring surgery and a visit, etc., with malignancy or terrible disease. And so we have to continue to perform this, but with the, the right protection. This is one of the most important points. And I'm, it's really important to explain uh, how to protect uh, yourself uh, and also to protect the patients. You need the, the right mask, especially for the ENT, because... Uh, you know that ENT, uh, when you are performing a visit, you have to open the mouth of the patients. And so you have to put inside the fiber optic. And so it's really important because it's high risk visits. And so you need to protect using the mask FFP2 that in the US, I think that is N95. And also it's really important to put the visor and protect the eyes and of course uh, everything is really important wherever it's possible to put the mask also on a patient and this is just for office uh, office in the office and also in the department and especially in the in the surgery or you must be careful when we are performing tracheostomy on a COVID positive patient because this maneuver is really high risk. So we need a special, a special protection for this. So uh, we'll transition now to discussing some of the disease specific characteristics of COVID-19, both uh, generally speaking, but also how it affects patients presenting to otolaryngology. And so we'll begin by asking some directed questions to Dr. Gross. 
So uh, Dr. Gross, coronavirus is a ubiquitous virus, but what makes COVID-19 pathogenically unique? Sure. So COVID-19 is a disease spread by the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. And I think what, what makes this so unique uh, to us is, is a few things. Um, number one, we know that this disease can be spread from human to human uh, by close contact. We also know that can, it can survive on surfaces outside the human body for a significant period of time, hours to days. And it also has a, a relatively prolonged incubation period up to about two weeks where a patient can be you know, asymptomatic, showing no signs of the disease, but still able to pass it on to other people in their vicinity. Um, so I think these three things all, all combine to make this a disease which can very easily be spread among people in, in an unknowing way. Um, the disease causes a profound respiratory distress syndrome in certain patients while it causes almost no symptoms in others, which makes it a very, very elusive virus. Um, and how are patients generally presenting, uh, not just from ENT standpoint, but uh, globally, their overall symptom set? Sure. So most COVID patients presenting to the hospital generally have a very similar constellation of symptoms, most commonly fever, a shortness of breath, cough, a dry cough. Uh, many patients also describe fatigue and, and muscle aches. Um, because I work in the intensive care unit, you know, I meet my patients typically later in their disease course after they have developed, you know, true respiratory failure, uh, meaning they they have required intubation and assistance with a with a ventilator. What's the general time course from exposure to onset of symptoms? Is it variable or is it pretty predictable? It's variable. Uh, some people don't. It's very difficult to to quantify because a lot of patients don't know when their exposure event actually took place. But we're seeing a period of somewhere around five days, all the way up to two weeks. And um, we all hear uh, everyone talk frequently about the relatively asymptomatic period before somebody becomes more critically ill, potentially. How long does this asymptomatic period last? Uh, and it's, I know it's difficult to characterize the prevalence of it because you don't know they have it because they're asymptomatic, but it, can you speak to that? Yeah, so patients will, some patients have a bit of a prodrome before the, before the full fever and respiratory distress. They'll, they'll complain of malaise or generalized fatigue. Some patients even complain of GI symptoms, um, nausea, anorexia. And so all of these more general viral-like symptoms could represent a more prodromal phase to COVID-19. And this is a very challenging question because we don't know what we don't know, but do you have any sense for the proportion of people who are asymptomatic? And probably the only way to get at this is routine screening for a large population. Is there any data out there to, to, to detail this? Sure. So you're absolutely right. Before we can really characterize the, the asymptomatic individuals, we need some sort of gold standard of diagnosis where we're, you know, really testing a, a very large number, number of people across the population routinely. Uh, but some estimates say it's, it's variable, but almost, you know, a third to 50 percent of patients could be asymptomatic carriers. If if I uh, sharing with you the uh, Italian experience about the asymptomatic patients, and uh, at the beginning, two small town, Vo Euganeo and Codogno, uh, were the town where a lot of people were affected uh, uh, regarding coronavirus, 
and the government decided to perform the test in all the citizens. And we found that uh, the percentage of asymptomatic patients are about 50-70% of the cases. So it's a really large number, or a really large number of people are asymptomatic in Italy. This was from Italian experience. That's very helpful to have a population-level screening to answer such a difficult question like that. Um, so for um, Dr. Marchioni and Dr. Wana, uh, maybe we'll start with Dr. Marchioni, but can you uh, describe the common otolaryngological symptoms that these, this population presents with? And we always hear about anosmia being one of the early cardinal symptoms. Can you talk about your experience with ENT presentation? Yes, anosmia is one of the main symptoms. You can have anosmia also at the beginning. For the rest, uh, it's really difficult to find an ENT symptom. And uh, we observed also some patients with uh, hearing loss, but we didn't understand if it's related to the virus. Instead, the anosmia is one of the most uh, early symptoms that you can, uh, you can detect in, in the patients. And Dr. Wanner, do you have anything to add? No, I mean, the cough, if you want to add to that, I, I, it goes to the same. How many people are really asymptomatic and how many people who has COVID has anosmia? It's going to be a question to answer later after we finish with what's going on now with the disease. Great. And uh, being a neurotologist myself, I'll commonly get emails from people. And one email I've uh, received from several different people is uh, asking whether or not uh, the symptom of tinnitus and also the symptom of sudden sensorineural hearing loss is a manifestation of early COVID. And that's because several providers have uh, witnessed this in the general population. Do you think this is just coincidental or do you think there are some associations between COVID positive patients and symptoms? There might be, Matt, uh, you know, the COVID, one of the COVID the issue is hypercoagulability states. So we are seeing people need, patients need to be a lot on heparin and anticoagulation because of what's going on. So there might be a very high likelihood that there might be some thrombosis or some obstruction at the very uh, small vessel levels in the inner ear that eventually we'll learn about. So in, in theory, yes, but, but again, um, uh, we have to wait a little bit to, to see what the real number will, will be. Dr. Marchioni, have you experienced uh, anybody presenting with these symptoms? Uh, yes, uh, some patient, uh, yes, presented this symptom. But uh, honestly, uh, also as George, I didn't understand if the symptom uh, was related to the virus or with the, the therapy, because also in Italy, a lot of patients uh, took uh, uh, anticoagulation. So uh, honestly, we, we must understand about this. Uh, Dr. Gross, how is testing being performed at your center? Is testing reserved for patients who are symptomatic? Yeah, for, for patients um, presenting to the emergency room with COVID-like symptoms, um, testing is being performed on those patients who have symptoms requiring admission. Um, in this case, you know, testing is done in order to cohort the patients and, and to direct therapy, uh, much like we did with the flu. Um, obviously, the goal is, is to broaden testing as more test kits do become available. And from an 
otolaryngology standpoint for intake for the operating room, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but do you have a screening protocol that you use before you will take a patient uh, to the operating room? And if we want to start with uh, Dr. Wana, please. Yeah, so um, initially when the whole uh, um, crisis started, we, dis we decided to stop all kind of surgery unless really, really the emergency one. And the main reason is we don't want to deplete the resources uh, for COVID patients. That include anesthesia machine, anesthesiologist, and, and staff. But now as things uh, slow down in a way, relatively speaking, about at least we have a light at the end of the tunnel. We, we Hopefully, I don't want to be completely positive and then be disappointed on Monday. Hopefully, the number will be steady. We start to realize there is small part of patients, uh, they are critical kind of cancer patients or patients, they have obstruction in their airway and they might die and they're going to need to have surgery. We have to create a COVID negative uh, area where we can bring in patients um, and then do surgery for them. So we started from scratch and the protocol now, uh, it's very interesting. So the patient's um, pre-op will be seen by a, in a negative pressure room with a pre-op uh, uh, team and they will get COVID testing uh, and they will get uh, pulse ox. Uh, we're shooting for 95% and they will get chest x-ray. And when all of these are ne completely normal and we deem that the case is critical, the day of surgery, they will be admitted into a negative pressure room that we have to, to really establish for, for all the patients now. And then again, we will repeat um, uh, their pulse oximeter. Ideally, we need to do a rapid uh, COVID testing, the Ab Abbott one, but we don't have it yet, but that will be added in, in immediately in pre-op. And if you do have uh, a good pulse oximeter uh, testing immediately in, in, in the pre-op area, then you'll be taken to surgery. Um, and then everybody will uh, be taking PPE uh, as far as this is a COVID patient, even if it's all uh, testing are negative. So the staff, uh, the nursing, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, all will be wearing N95 and eye protection. And this is a protocol we're following. I will tell you more about it when we get enough cohort of patients to get the data out. Great. Thank you very much. And Dr. Marchioni, do you have anything to add as far as your preoperative screening? No, I think that is uh, quite similar because also in Italian experience, we stopped all of the the traditional ENT activity and the surgery, and only for malignancy and for urgent cases. And of course, all patients before surgery, we need to perform the test, so the swabs, and the chest X-ray and the pulse oximetry. It's the same because we observed that just the swabs we have about 40% of the cases were false, false negative. And so uh, it's meant to have a really big uh, gap of the error. And uh, in order to avoid this error, it's better to perform uh, the test with the pulse oximeter, with a walking test, and also the chest X-ray. You brought up a very important point about false negatives. Um, do you, if you have a patient that you have a high suspicion for having the condition, but you get a test and it's negative, how do you manage that beyond, I know you talked about chest x-ray, chest CT, pulse oximetry and things, but how do you, um, do you end up getting another COVID PCR test? 
or how will you manage that? And what's the delay? How long do you wait? Yeah, um, we receive the patients in the morning, and we put the patient in a, in a, in a, uh, in a room in isolation. And of course, the patient should be uh, should put the mask and uh, the gloves. And after one of my resident, uh, uh, he can perform the test. These webs. We are waiting these webs and. Um, Actually, we need about six hours in order to have the response. And after, if the response is negative, we can do the chest X-ray. If the chest X-ray is negative and the oximeter is good, of course, we have about 5% of the cases that are false negative. So uh, the error is just a little bit less with respect, of course, uh, 40% of the cases. And only when we have all the data, we can decide uh, to put the patient in the operating field. Dr. Gross, uh, from a standpoint of being an intensivist, how are you managing the issue of possible false negative testing? And do you screen again? Sure, we definitely screen again. I think in diagnosing COVID, we have to use all of the data available to us and our clinical judgment. So we weigh the the patient's history, the story that they're telling us, as well as their vital signs, fever, hypoxemia, in addition to their chest x-ray findings. If everything looks like COVID, but the test is negative, we'll certainly retest. Um, One other thing that, that we have in our critically ill patients is often a breathing tube and we can use uh, BAL, bronchoalveolar alveolar lavage, to collect a sample, which uh, this, this form of testing may have higher uh, sensitivity than our typical swab testing. Are there any other upcoming tests that you think are promising that will be more accurate or be able to identify or detect disease earlier? As, as far as, as I know, th- this is our best test that we have at our disposal now, using the test that we have in conjunction with, with the best clinical judgment that we have. Great. Um, and there's been a lot of more recent discussion of antibody testing. Is, uh, are you currently using that, and in what capacity is it being used? Sure. Uh, we, we are currently um, undergoing antibody testing. Testing at Mount Sinai, the, the campus where I am, is available uh, for physicians who have had COVID and, and have recovered. And the hope here is that uh, positive antibodies confer immunity. And if that's the case, immune physicians can be used in certain clinical situations where exposure is especially high. Um, additionally, blood donated from you know antibody positive uh, patients may be able to be used as co- convalescent plasma, may be able to be transfused to, to sick patients in order to help them fight infection. So we're using this both to protect our, our frontline providers as well as hopefully offer an additional therapy for our, for our very sick patients. I'm so glad you brought that topic up. I think it's a critical topic right now and there's a lot of probably misinformation about it. What is your take on the use of Plaquenil, azithromycin and potentially plasmapheresis for treatment? Sure. We have been using uh, Plaquenil and azithromycin either alone or in combination to to treat both uh, non-critically ill and critically ill COVID patients. Um, 
pretty much across the board, the, the main limitation to these two drugs, as, as we know, are, is the potential for cardiac arrhythmia in patients who are already predisposed. Um, you know, I think we need more time and again, more routine testing to, to ultimately determine the efficacy of these therapies, but we certainly are using them. Um, and can you speak to the general timeline for the disease course? We already talked about the potential asymptomatic period, but from the time a person's diagnosed, how long is it till they clear their disease? We'll often see these statistics about current people with COVID, people who have cleared it, and at what time point do they clear the disease and they're no longer considered contagious? So, you know, from an ICU perspective, we're seeing fairly long courses of mechanical ventilation um, on the order of, of one to two weeks. Um, before before patients can really be weaned from the ventilator, which is is quite a long period of time, and I think longer than at least we we were initially expecting. Um, you know, in the patients who aren't critically ill, I, I think the general consensus is we're looking at about two weeks of persistent you know fevers and and symptoms up to two weeks. And, um, you know, I talked with one of my emergency room colleagues about this. They're telling patients who come to the emergency room with symptoms and who are not admitted but, but are sent home to basically anticipate uh, about two weeks and, and to wait at least seven days plus three additional asymptomatic days before assuming that they're not contagious. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. Um, I think we'll move on to operative care. We've kind of woven in and out of that a little bit, but we're going to focus on a little bit more and I particularly like the insights of Dr. Marchioni and Dr. Wana on these questions. So right now, many centers are reserving surgery for emergent or urgent cases. How are you currently triaging cases? And within the field of ENT, what are the most common procedures you find yourself doing now? So uh, we created a, a, a oversight surgical committee for uh, patients critical. Uh, I oversee that committee, but each uh, subspecialty and other chair uh, look uh, and, and triage the cases. And we send emails to all our faculty about critical cases uh, uh, list uh, to fill. Each subspecialty, for example, rhinology, tell us about if CSF leak or, or some infection active going on, uh, had a neck, people said it's a cancer that if you don't, any cancer that you don't treat within two, three weeks, it will have uh, a adversarial uh, outcome uh, effect on their outcome. Uh, any progressive airway disease that can affect life in, in, in laryngology. So they did submit that list. And then when there is a case they have, uh, they will send the case that meet those criteria. We'll look at it uh, myself with the anesthesiologist and, 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 uh, and then said, yeah, this is a go. Uh, it's a critical, it fit the criteria, and then we'll get it through the process of being testing for COVID and all what I mentioned before. What we found ourselves doing mainly really oncologic cases uh, and, and, and some airway uh, cases. Uh, like last week, we have a tumor that's getting a patient to be blind. They just need to decompress it. Uh, and the patient was losing their sight. So we end up allowing those type of cases. And this is what we're doing for now. As things evolve, we can loosen the criteria. But for now, we still, as uh, Dr. Gross said, we don't want to have this false hope and all be disappointed. We're still very strict about who gets into our operating room. And uh, Dr. Marchioni, you're in a unique position because it hopefully it looks like the curve may be flattening out or even reducing. Um, how is that 
affecting how you're looking at doing cases and what sort of cases are you doing now and how is your volume now compared to what it was, say, two weeks ago? Honestly, it's the same because uh, we must be careful. And uh, at present, we are performing uh, tumor, malignancy, and uh, all uh, cases requiring, of course, surgery because uh, uh, the patient uh, can have some problem with the life. And so uh, actually, for example, the last week, uh, we had uh, just malignancy disease, of course, we have to manage also the tracheostomy on COVID positive. And uh, in some cases, of course, uh, for example, meningoencephalocele uh, from uh, the anterior skull base, uh, and, but only these cases. We, we are thinking about to introduce uh, something like uh, a, a traditional uh, um, a, disease just because of the decreasing of the curve of the coronavirus but in my opinion it's too early to to understand and so probably at the end of April we will be able to to try to open the operating theater also for other cases. So Dr. Marchioni, uh, what otolaryngology procedures are considered higher risk or aerosol generating and are there specific steps you're taking to mitigate transmission during of these uh, during these cases for yourself and your coworkers? Yes, uh, the high risk procedure are especially uh, nose surgery and uh, surgery on rhinopharynx because uh, one of the most important aspect of the coronavirus is the concentration of the virus inside the rhinopharynx. And also, of course, all the tracheostomy. When you are opening the trachea, it's really uh, generating aerosol of the virus. And uh, also the laryngectomy or pharyngectomy, all of these cases are in high risk, of course. Also, if you have the test negative, is the same. We have to use uh, the protection. In Italy, we are using for this kind of surgery FFP2 or FFP3 with a surgical mask, so two masks, and we are performing the surgery with two guns and three gloves. So it's a really different way to work, of course. Absolutely. Can you describe what FFP2 and FFP3 are? Yeah, probably in US, FFP2 is N95, and FFP3 is N99, so it's different in Europe. And uh, so the, the, the difference is uh, the, the filtration, because uh, uh, you can have a stop of uh, the virus in 95% uh, of uh, the, the, the possibility in uh, FFP2, instead in 90, 99% in an NFP3. Great. And um, we, I think it's intuitive for all of us to understand why uh, rhinology procedures or upper air digestive procedures might be high risk. But could you talk a little bit about why otologic procedures are sometimes considered high risk? Yeah, otologic procedure is a high risk, especially um, mastoidectomy using the drill because uh, for two reasons. Because, uh, of course, there is the high concentration of the virus inside the cells. And when you are performing drill or drilling the mastoid, you are generating aerosol. So it's a really high risk procedure. 
And uh, right now for otolaryngologists, one thing that we'll be asked to do uh, relatively frequently is tracheostomy for prolonged ventilary, uh, ventilation assistance. Um, obviously, this is considered a very high-risk procedure. Uh, maybe we'll start with Dr. Wana. Are there some uh, strategies you've used to reduce your risk of exposure during tracheostomy? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the first thing is we, uh, the New York had an society, and this was uh, spearheaded by the team at Sinai, did put a guidelines on tracheostomy in COVID patients. So technically, we don't do any tracheostomy before day 21 unless you needed it. So a patient needs to be three weeks before we entertain the idea of tracheostomy just to decrease the viral load in this patient and the exposure. However, sometimes you will be ending in a situation that uh, you're going to need to do it an emergency. And these are the most dangerous situation for everybody. So in order to limit exposure on, on everybody during the creosomy, there is steps that you're going to need to follow. One, you have to uh, have a proper PPE uh, dressing or PAPR. Sometimes the PAPR, which is the positive airway respirator pressure, that's like you, you'll be covered completely, is not available. So you're going to need to have two gown, uh, three gloves, as uh, Daniele said, N95 mask, on the top of the N95, a surgical mask, uh, a goggles, and, and a face shields, and, and, and two hats. And you have to follow the proper technique uh, for yourself. Uh, number two, you have to limit the number of people in the room. So usually we have a, an attending doing that with a, with a senior uh, person. We don't put the junior resident or people who have no experience. Just you want this to be efficient and fast, and you want to limit the exposure. You limit the nurses in the room to one person, and same with anesthesiologists, limited it to one person. So the number of people should be limited in the room that you perform the tracheostomy. Now, as far as uh, sequencing, Dr. Gross can talk about the rapid sequencing, but for us, uh, the important things to do is to avoid cautery if you can, because that will spray uh, the blood sometimes and the viruses. And when you decided to open the, the trachea, uh, the pa patient has to be completely paralyzed and you have to stop and do the technique in apnea or patient stop the ventilation uh, and try to avoid the suction. So correct PPE, limit number of people, experienced people in the room, uh, avoid suctioning, complete paralysis and uh, apnea when you open the trachea and inflate, uh, super inflate the tube uh, before you open the, the trachea to avoid the uh, uh, secretions. And that's what we do. And then technically, we would love to have it three weeks after, but sometimes you're forced to do it earlier. If I can say one more thing, uh, Matt, I don't want to take the whole time. I think as we learn more, it will be smart eventually to do viral load testing on all the patients that they're going to have a, a procedure that is risky. And it will become like the HIV. If you have a patient where they have a low viral load, then it will be lower risk to perform anything comparing to high, high viral load. And maybe the date will be seven or 10 or five after the infection will be different to different patient. And I think that if you think about scientifically, that will be probably a, a good way to do it. That's very helpful. Dr. Marchione, do you have anything to add? No, I, I, I'm exactly as George, uh, the procedure is really crucial uh, and uh, you have to following step-by-step -step procedure. Another important point, uh, uh, if you are able, it's better 
to avoid the tracheostomy or delay the procedure because the viral load. Uh, we know that the viral load is really high in the first week of the disease or in the second week of the disease. And so the tracheostomy is a high risk, especially at the beginning. So in, in our hospital, we are discussing always with anesthesiologist team if it's really necessary or it's possible to postpone the procedure. You have to do uh, the, the, the really necessary tracheostomy. And for the rest, uh, uh, the same type of George uh, we are performing also in Verona. Uh, as we rolled the antibody testing at Sinai for all the staff, uh, whether you, recently, whether you are tested COVID positive or negative, the frontliner, which means what Dr. Gross doing, critical care, ENT, anesthesia, NED. Uh, if you start to have staff who have antibodies in ENT, you can have a group of people initially to get exposed to more uh, risky procedure because they already develop immunity. And also that's another smart way of, of looking at it. If you test all your troop and you have 40% of them already has antibody, maybe you can rotate with that through groups until something else happens. That's another way to look at it. I totally agree. Um, do you employ a rotation for your uh, different staff so that you don't have everybody on at once so that you avoid the, you know, the very potentially catastrophic situation where everybody within a subspecialty have uh, an infection at the same time? Is there a system that you use? Yes. So we have a team that rotate. We, and honestly, for airway, we're rotating it on a almost daily basis because we have the staff for it for now. Uh, but yes, you, you don't want to... As a system, which means other hospitals will need airway coverage, we're going to create groups that are specific to the hospital. They rotate every second day or third day to avoid a lot of exposure at one time for uh, only the same people. That's definitely something to do. Um, one other question related to you know, the airway team. Um, are you considering using uh, percutaneous trachs over open tracheotomy to potentially reduce that risk of aer uh, aerosol generating uh, technique? Uh, and we, we thought about uh, uh, at the beginning and uh, we observed that for percutaneous tracheostomy, uh, the, the timing when the trachea is open is more with respect to the open procedure because when you are performing the open procedure you can control exactly when you want to open the trachea put the, the cannula and it's really short time and especially when you are performing this the patient is in apnea so it's really difficult to have uh, of course it's high risk but you can control with the percutaneous, of course, looks like minimally invasive, but the trachea probably is more open for more time and probably you can have more aerosolization. So we decided to perform only open tracheostomy, but this was our experience. Just one thing on, on that, Matt, that as you do percutaneous, you have to remember those patients are all anticoagulated heavily. And, and sometimes there is a risk of bleeding in a setting that is not uh, excellent for controlling it, just to keep that in mind. That's a very good point. Um, so just generally speaking, for operative cases within otolaryngology, how is OR anesthesia induction managed? Do you have one anesthesia, anesthesiologist performing the 
intubation? And then how much time do you wait for personnel to enter the OR suite? Uh, so I, I cannot agree more with everything that's already been said about airway management. The The goal is to minimize the the number of people that are in the room and involved with the airway, to use only the most experienced people, and to really avoid anything aerosolizing, which is primarily <clears throat> the patient coughing or bag mass ventilation. So for operative uh, procedures or for intubations of COVID positive patients on the floor or in the ICU, we're performing rapid sequence induction for all patients, uh, paralyzing them you know, on induction of anesthesia to minimize coughing. We're avoiding bag mask ventilation and we are using the one person, the most experienced person in the room to perform the intubation. We are also using preferentially video laryngoscopes like the GlideScope or the CMAC um, instead of a typical Mac or Miller blade to perform the intubation because it allows the anesthesiologist to stand slightly further back, uh, further away from the patient. Um, one additional thing that we're doing upon intubation, we're using a, a clamp to clamp the back end of the endotracheal tube so that the aerosolized particles from the airway don't escape into the room before, before the breathing tube is connected to the ventilator itself. You bring up uh, several really good uh, talking points. You had mentioned using the video laryngoscope for intubations to remove the intubator further away from the upper air digestive tract of the patient to reduce the risk of um, spreading. You know, one thing I think within otolaryngology that has been useful for us to consider is when we perform laryngoscopies, uh, nasopharyngoscopies on patients, we can record uh, the the footage so that if we need to show another provider, they don't need to come back and separately scope the patient. Um, also, by using uh, a video attachment or a video head uh, to the nasopharyngoscope, we're also uh, distancing ourselves from the patient uh, somewhat to reduce the risk of aerosolizing uh, particulates. Um, you bring, the other point that you bring up that I think is very worth uh, discussing further is the implications of this sort of uh, care streamlining and how it impacts the learner. So you had mentioned that in your situation, you take the most experienced person to do the intubation. Um, how, how do you think that that sort of situation is impacting our learners overall? And maybe uh, we can start with you, Dr. Gross. Sure. I mean, you know, trainees have, have certainly been affected by this dramatically. In one sense, it's expediting medical training in a sense. I mean, Mount Sinai, in addition to several other medical schools in the United States, have actually graduated medical students early in order to, to add trainees to the workforce. So certainly these interns and other very junior residents would not be exposed to this degree of medical acuity um, or this amount of critical care in normal circumstances. Um, that being said, we have to be kind of careful how we de deploy these people into the workforce. We want them, you know, personally, I want them to learn about critical care and learn about these patients, but, but they need to, to protect themselves and to expose them, junior residents, unnecessarily to COVID is, is certainly not the answer. We have to make sure that they're learning, but that we're, we're still being very careful and not allowing inexperienced providers to perform very high-risk procedures. Thank you. Dr. Marchioni, how has uh, this situation affected uh, trainees uh, in your center? Yeah, I, I agree because uh, uh, 
we avoid to have the residents during especially tracheostomy because uh, a wrong procedure, uh, it's a really high risk. And uh, so uh, this is a terrible period and we observed uh, dying also young people without any comorbidity and uh, the disease is, is really crazy and so we must be careful. And uh, I decided to uh, dedicate just uh, uh, people with experience to perform a tracheostomy, avoiding uh, the residents. Um, so now we'll tr uh, transition to the topic of clinical care. So, uh, Dr. Wana, how are you approaching uh, patient care in the clinic right now? Are you triaging? Are you performing a lot of virtual consults over the telephone? Um, and how are you? What's your general approach? Yeah. So. Uh, when uh, the crisis hit, I think uh, the uh, government uh, expedited telehealth coverage across uh, triborough states, which means New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. That did help a lot. So we did push already the platform very, very fast. And, uh, and, and we have, as of probably, I would tell you the number yesterday, we had over 4,000 telehealth visits within Sinai system uh, in one day. As far as ENT, uh, we reach out to all the patients and tell them that we have this platform uh, and then uh, tell them that we're going to continue their care via telehealth. So some people opt in, some people said we're fine, we'll come when we need it. So each provider has some number of different telehealth visits that they do. However, we still need to see, I still see patients in my office because some of the visits uh, cannot be done uh, properly on telehealth. They need to be for example, sudden hearing loss, uh, something stuck in their ear and other stuff that somebody bleeding, they need to come. And the emergencies now in New York City are all full of airway COVID patients. So for that, we ask the patient on the phone if they feel any symptoms of COVID, the most common that we know about, which is like cough, fever over the last few days. And we triage them at, at on the phone for that. If they said no, then I will ask them to come to our uh, office. Once they come to the office, every, we expect them to be even asymptomatic with COVID. So they get a mask uh, at the entrance of the hospital. Uh, initially, we used a uh, temperature check, then we stopped doing it because we rely on the patient that they don't have temperature. And they come upstairs uh, to see us. There is a, a small skeleton of, of people left on the floor. So we'll minimize exposure and everybody will be wearing N95 and the, the, uh, and the respectful, uh, uh, respected PPE for it uh, as if it is a COVID patient. And, and then we'll perform the exam. The patients understand that. We take all the precaution. We don't see a lot of patients. Like I see two or three, sometimes four, sometimes zero, but that's the precaution we are taking. Thank you. And can, just so we get a sense for how things have changed, uh, maybe not by number, but by proportion or by percentage, how many how many uh, visits now are performed virtually or over the telephone versus in, as a patient face-to-face -face visit in clinic? Over probably 99% of the patients uh, of the visit are, are done over the phone or over uh, video conferencing. Great. And Dr. Marchioni, can you talk about your experience with triaging clinical care? So seeing a patient in clinic and whether or not you're using any different platforms for telehealth. Uh, yes, um, also, we uh, honestly, we are performing really limited number of patients and face-to-face, -face, 
and uh, for the rest uh, we we can try to explain uh, via telephone or uh, video chatting but not only for the office consultation but also in the ENT world uh, where we have a lot of uh, oncologic patients uh, we stop all the visit from, uh, for example, also the relatives of the patient. So it's really terrible because the patient, they are not able to see the relatives. And for this reason, we, we are deciding to perform a video chat with the relatives, with the doctor and the patient with the, the iPad. We, I, I bought personally a different iPad for the department in order to have the possibility to explain it to the relatives, to the patient, in order to have the contact between the patients and the relatives. It's something crazy, but uh, it's work. And uh, for the rest, uh, also, uh, we are trying to organize a visit uh, to video chat or... Uh, but of course, sometimes it's not easy because you have to see, the, for example, the larynx of the patient, the nasopharynx of the patient. And so in, in that case, you, you need to see face-to-face -face the, the patients. Uh, that brings up my next question. Um, you know, one of the most uh, critical aspects of a face-to-face -face visit is the clinical examination. Are there any tricks or any tips that you use to examine a patient? Like, for example, you might use... Uh, teleotoscopy. Uh, you can see some of those uh, systems being sold on Amazon, or are there other ways where you have a person who's more remote uh, visit with their local ear, nose, and throat provider and then call into you to get more information about the exam? Are there any things that you have done that you have found useful? Um, in, in, in Italy, uh, we are performing, of course, uh, all the all the test or visit with the camera, uh, with the endoscope or um, and it's really simple to, to check the patient, of course, with the protection, because if you need to see the otoscopy, it's not so high risk, because you just to put a mask on the patient and just to put a mask on yourself with the FFP2, and you have already a good condition and not so high risk. The problem when you are performing endoscopy of the nose or the larynx, in, in that case, it, you need a, a protector on your face and also, of course, uh, we are using uh, the FFP2 with a surgical mask and uh, with the head cover and with as like in the, in the, the operating theater. That's great. Dr. Warner, do you have anything else to add? No, uh, I know the teleendoscopy for the ear that you can plug it to the phone and or on the iPhone. We're not using it, honestly. Anything that can wait, even pain in the ear, I, I'm putting them on drops and tell them to call me in a week. Uh, so I try to avoid anybody to come to the office unless needed. Great, thank you. And now we'll transition to kind of a potpourri session where we ask several questions pertaining to other aspects that are still very relevant. Um, so overall, how has this impacted resident and fellow education? We spoke specifically about surgical training, but I think there are, uh, are some potential silver linings where uh, we're developing new platforms for education. And uh, Dr. Wana, can you speak to some of those that you've been developing or working with? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, everybody uh, rallied for the resident and the medical students, really. They are uh, put at tremendous pressure in every single aspect of it. We're relying a lot also on them. There is physical, emotion, mental, you just name it. And educational is a big part of that. So I think like uh, Sinai and other institutions, uh, we're developing Zoom conferencing and, and, and teleconference. And we're doing that on a regular basis. So we'll be able to have like a basically a Zoom conferencing for the resident across the board, which is in a way the silver lining. And that is good because it exposed now uh, Sinai resident to a different program and and to a different attending almost on a regular basis. So that's very, very helpful. Uh, We're really monitoring also the technical part and the surgical part. They will learn it. We're going to come out of that and there will be plenty of cases for them to learn. I think we're also very concerned about their emotion and their uh, and their really state of mind. So we're very careful about that because this is taking a lot of toll on everybody. Um, so also the residents are video zooming with each other, uh, and then sometimes uh, uh, sometimes they they find their colleague in other program and they join also their zoom. So it's been a collaborative effort with everybody. Definitely, it's a positive because we're, we're getting uh, information from all across the U.S. and even from worldwide. Uh, but that, but uh, something that we probably will continue to use in the future. Uh, and that's probably where we are with the education. Thank you very much. And Dr. Gross, in your setting, have you used anything in particular for your residents for didactics? Absolutely. I, I agree. I think, uh, like Dr. Wana said, we, we also adopted these teleconferencing platforms fairly early, you know, Zoom to try and help us do educational sessions without person-to-person contact. And I totally agree. This is a, a devastating disease, but but maybe we can take from it the silver lining that I, I do think, like he said, there is more collaboration now and there's more, more ingenuity in terms of, of you know, teaching techniques now, and, and hopefully we can take some of these things with us into the future, even after this pandemic ends. Dr. Marchioni, is there are there any unique platforms that you're using in Italy, and how has this uh, changed resident education from a didactic teaching standpoint? I think that is the same, uh, like George said, uh, we're using uh, a lot of uh, Zoom conference, uh, especially to perform lecture, to see also live surgery. We, we are performing uh, sometimes a connection with the operating theater. And uh, also uh, our residents, they, uh, uh, they are working with us, especially for uh, oncological cases. And so also they are performing in the operating theater but not on the tracheostomy. That's a really difficult, different situation. So, yes. I have to say, uh, one of the things that's most remarkable to me amidst all of this is how everyone's become much more united across the United States and international. I've never had more interactions with other providers at other centers uh, than this time right now. And, um, you know, our resident, uh, resident of, uh, at our place uh, said this recently, and I thought it was very interesting. They said they've never been more busy than now. And I think it, provides a testament to the, our uh, driven nature to educate people both uh, you know, at our center and other centers uh, nationally and internationally. So in some ways, despite all the tragedy and anxiety that's been developed by this, I do think there are several things that uh, we will learn from this and take 
uh, later on in the post-COVID era. Uh, one other question I have, uh, more, more from a social aspect, we talked about the period of being asymptomatic and providers are have a much higher risk of being exposed. How are you managing that socially when you leave the hospital knowing that you might be carrying it, but you're asymptomatic? Do you self-isolate at home? Do you limit your interactions with others? How do you manage that? And maybe if Dr. Gross wants to start. Oh, absolutely. I mean, prevention is still by, by far the best way we have to combat the, the disease. And if, if we're asking the rest of the community for social for social isolation, then, then we have to do our part by practicing it ourselves. And I, I personally am trying to social isolate the, the best social distance, the best that I can um, when I'm not in the hospital. And I know many people in the hospital who have been separated from their spouses or their children for weeks in order to limit the exposure of their own families. Dr. Watt and Dr. Marchioni. So um, I, I struggle with that because I, I, the, the community are offering a lot of um, hotels to stay when you, when you come from the COVID area hospitals so you don't get home. Uh, but the way I, I do it, and it might be a little bit uh, different. So I, I, I honestly, my wife put a towel in, 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 in the garage. So I get into the garage. I, I take off my clothes, put the towel, and get immediately to the shower and then get dressed without seeing anybody. So uh, everybody's doing differently. Some people are taking shower in the in the, uh, uh, in the in the in the hospital and then just getting changing their clothes in the garage. It did definitely change how our life uh, is. Uh, but that's um, that's what I try to do to avoid it. The family has been in the house for the last months and did not leave it, uh, and that's what everybody's doing uh, their part too. Yeah, regarding me, uh, my situation is just a little decreased because uh, I'm driving between Modena and Verona. I'm working in Verona, but I'm living in Modena, and I have a special permission to take my car and driving uh, between Modena and Verona. And I'm living in Modena, but uh, in, in isolation. It means that uh, I have my room with my bathroom, and uh, I... Of course, I can speak with my wife via Skype. So this is good. And also with my son. And sometimes I can meet them just with the mask. So I'm trying to do this to avoid to spread the virus to my family because the false negative. And we are working every day in the hospital and we don't know what's happening on it. Just in closing, I have a couple last questions. Are there any key lessons that we've learned from during this time that will benefit us later? Um, maybe Dr. Gross, if you want to start. I mean, I, the thing that I try and think about is is just the resiliency that physicians and, and staff has shown during this period. And I think everyone has, has worked outside of their comfort zones, has expanded their roles, have, you know, acquired new knowledge, adapted to changing situations. And I think that if we take this this resiliency with us, put it in our back pockets, and and just remember remember what we're capable of, I think that'll that'll really serve us well. Undoubtedly, you know, we'll hopefully not to this scale. We, we very likely will have crises in the future, and I think if we just take this this resiliency, I think that that will really help us a lot moving forward. That's a very good point, Dr. Wana. Um, I, I think we learned that the human uh, during crisis really become close to each other. 
which is a beautiful thing to say to see and everybody will come to help uh, the other person uh, but on the on the macro looking at that uh, i i do feel that we're going to probably have a plan uh, much more rigid and structured for pandemic it's never going to be perfect or good but i think we learn a lot uh, how to surge planning and and uh, on, on the job and definitely that comes with some chaos like all over the world i think what we're going to learn from that is a pandemic and something that could be a public health issue should be top on the list about structure response for that and you're going to see a lot of institution going to start to have drill on, on these uh, for the years to come and hopefully we never go through that again thank you dr marchioni yeah, I think that the, the, the lesson to learn from COVID uh, is that, of course, uh, in this period, uh, I understand very, uh, very clearly that the life is only a passage and we, we must take in mind and the human being will be safe only if we will be able to help each other. So it's another important point. And uh, now we understand clearly the real value of the life, especially of the freedom, because now we are in prison in our home without the possibility to meet friends or relatives and no restaurant, nothing. And so I hope that tomorrow when we will be free, we can appreciate in a really great way. So we will see, honestly. Very well said. Thank you. Um, well, we're so grateful for this opportunity to learn from you all. You have uh, been working in the trenches, and I think all of us, uh, our thoughts turn to you in New York, and, as well as Italy, uh, throughout all of this. Is there any specific advice that you might have for the listeners who are just starting to see increasing numbers of patients coming into their medical center now? I think personal protection is key uh, very early. Uh, definitely, the, if the state can implement social distancing, it's very helpful, but I really do think uh, it's extremely important. I cannot emphasize a lot on, on protecting yourself. Yes, I agree. The protection is the key. Uh, if we will be able to have the protection and everything is going well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, amidst all of this, what gives you hope? Dr. Gross. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful when I talk to my friends and my family in New York and, and certainly talking to people from other cities and our, and our colleagues in, in Verona, definitely. And I hear people so diligently practicing social distancing. You know, a huge part in the fight against COVID is, is ongoing inside the hospital, but so much is happening in the community as well. And when I hear that people really are working towards public health measures, I, I can more clearly see the light at the end of this tunnel. Dr. Wana. I think if you walk, I'm in my office now in New York City. If you walk in New York now, you see how it's empty in the middle of April, comparing to when you come to visit me, Matt, and and, and see how much the, resp the response of New Yorker is great. That's a huge, really hope for me to see how, how, how good we are as people as to come uh, as one. And the other hope, honestly, is this. In, in all of us, you find we always want to share and 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 care about others make sure they learn from our mistakes and we learn from them uh, having you and having uh, uh, caroline and having daniele and doing this in the middle of a crisis that give you a lot of hope about who we are as as people 
I agree. Yes, I agree totally, of course. We must understand our mistake and after this is really important for the future. Well, thank you so much. I, again, can't emphasize how grateful we are as listeners to be able to learn from you. If there's anything that this is, uh, time has taught us is uh, that the, uh, the benefits of unity, resilience, uh, the, the developments of certain platforms that we'll take in the future, telemedicine, telehealth, are all things that I think uh, make us stronger at this time amidst a time of uh, some anxiety uh, and chaos and some tragedy. I think you're uh, just being on the tele or being on this podcast on a Saturday is a testament to your dedication to education. And I can't thank you all enough, Dr. Gross, Dr. Marchioni, and Dr. Wana, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.